Well, that's our oldest daughter with family, and uh, they're doing well. I'm a proud grandpa, and that's our younger daughter, Raylene, with her husband, Jeffrey. And uh, coming up there are their three kids. So they're sweet. They're doing fine, too. So thank you for having us. It feels like we're home. And thank you all for uh, helping us worship. One of you told me that I must tell uh, something that happened in first service. Uh, So since I can skip town, I'll do it. (laughs) John got confused and came up and started doing something out of order, Pastor John. And so Dr. Bob came over to give him instructions and all that sort of thing. So when I got up, I said, I'm really relieved to see that Dr. Bob is still the senior pastor of Cal Mesa. <laughs> As I say, I'm skipping town. So. First of all. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> Third of all. Let's, let's, let's get this straight. Who was confused, Bob? <laughs> Uh, you had, I, you had two dots. See when you got <laughs> Bob thought something that with Damaris that was happening in second service was happening in first service. And you don't so have to explain. This. No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, can we just say thank you to Bob for all Amen. he does? <laughs> I just know I can have fun with Dr. Bob and we can have fun as Cala Mason, right? <laughs> Have you ever noticed how many pipe dreams there are in Scripture? Scripture's just full of pipe dreams. I'll mention a few to you. Um, How about the one in Philippians that says, uh, do not be anxious about everything, anything, not everything. Do not be anxious about anything. Would you say that's a pipe dream? I mean, who lives that way? Uh, Another one. um, Consider it pure joy whenever you suffer trials of many. (laughs) Wow. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Does that feel like a pipe dream to you sometimes? One of the wildest pipe dreams in Scripture, I think, is in Romans 12, where Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. Somebody laughed. I'm with you. Hey, I mean, when evil comes your way, what's your knee-jerk response? To respond with evil and just fuel the fire. Do not be overcome by evil. What a pipe dream. But the next line... It's off the charts. You know what it is? But overcome evil with good, you know it. Is it real or is it a pipe dream for you? And the the amazing thing is, is his word reads in such a way as if these pipe dreams can actually become real, can move out of the realm of pipe dreams to be, actually be our experience. Quite amazing. Your theme this month that you've chosen 
uh, is uh, the church a people with purpose? And under that theme, today's topic that you've chosen is the church, a people in Christ. We're going to talk about being in Christ today, but in a certain way, we could talk about being in Christ as a status we have with Jesus because of his saving power and our commitment to him, we have assurance of safety with Jesus. Two people that get married, once they say, I do, they're married. They may have all sorts of ups and downs, but they never lie awake wondering if they're married. Today, we're not talking about, am I married to Jesus or not? The biblical image is Jesus is our husband and we're his wife. He's the groom. We're the bride. We're assuming that. And now we want to talk about growing in Christ and Christ in us so that the marriage becomes more and more beautiful and we become just more and more mature brides of Jesus so that the pipe dreams don't just stay pipe dreams but become reality. Don't you long for that? Now, Jesus described in an amazing way, hey, frankly, this is another pipe dream. Let me just read it to you from John 17 and verse 21. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is incredible. Jesus is praying and therefore expecting that we will be one with him and the Father in the same way that the Father and he are one. Wow, speaking of pipe dreams. And that then we'll be one with each other and that's what will establish his credibility so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you know that one of the primary ways that the credibility of Jesus is established is the oneness of the community of the body of believers. Now, <clears throat> I, um, I can't explain, even begin to explain, really what being in Christ means and what Christ in us. I, I can't, can't, we'll touch the edges, but, you know, um, it's like trying to explain the peace that passes understanding. And scripture says, hey, you, 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 can't, you can't even understand it, let alone put it into words. But you can experience it. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, another pipe dream. Or Paul in Ephesians 3, remember, I love that prayer in Ephesians 3. And near the end, I want you to grasp how wide and long and deep, uh, wide, let's see, yeah, how wide, long, high, and deep, that's the order, is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses, there we are again, understanding, knowledge. You know, so much of, of this, this wonderful journey with Jesus, we really can't, even understand, but boy, his grace gives it to us to experience. And so 
What I would like to do today is simply suggest, more than suggest, I, I'm, I'm, real, I'm a real believer in what I'm going to say. I, I want to offer an opportunity and a challenge for a direction and a focus we might take that will give real rich possibilities to more deeply experience being in Christ, Christ in us, so that the pipe dreams become real. Now our text in John 15, uh, you heard it, remain in me, living in me, keep remaining and abiding and I'll keep abiding in you. No branch can, can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Apparently, there's some options here. Okay? Otherwise, he wouldn't say, remain in me or not. There's some options here. I am the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, what I'm hungry for... I am really hungry that my life will be an organic, living, fruit-bearing demonstration of Jesus' grace. Aren't you hungry for that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit will be born. Uh, I don't know whether when you read this passage on remaining, this famous passage in John 15, you think at all about grafting plants. How many of you have grafted plants? Not very many. Is Jim here today? This side, this side. Where is she? There's, you didn't raise your hand. Did you raise your hand? I saw on, the, on Facebook some remarkable fruit from Jim and Kathy's grafting experiences in their garden. I don't know much about grafting, but this, this I do understand, and that is the host plant is cut and is cut quite deeply. We could say the host plant is wounded. And then the receiving branch is placed into that wound, deep into it, and the cut needs to be deep and the placement deep so that there will be a union. And as a result of the branch being in the host plant, the host plant life will now flow into the branch and there will be wonderful fruit as a result of that grafting. Paul in Romans 11 talked to the Gentiles and said, you need to be grafted into the olive tree. You see, and, it, and that's what we want. We want this grafting experience, and you're probably ahead of me now, and so let's go there. We need to be grafted into Jesus at the point of his deepest wounds. You follow this image, this picture? So that Jesus was wounded deeply, obviously, most deeply on the cross, and thereby it seems that we need to have a special focus on remaining with him at the cross, hanging around the cross a lot, looking at him, receiving his grace, so that we're in him and his life flows in and through us. And so that we're daily living this experience of I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live the old 
itself, though, but Christless in me. And there's a whole new life, and there's fruitfulness. So let's talk about the cross. And I, you'll be surprised at what I'm just going to say, but I'm going to say it. You'll have to work at, at continuing to listen. Not that it's going to be boring. It may be, but, I, I, but what I'm concerned about is we talk a lot about the cross, and we have so many platitudes and cliches. When we talk about the cross, they just kind of they just go on by us. And, and, and we don't hear them freshly and hear them new. So to help the rest of our study be more than just a long cliche on the cross, I would like to quote for you, and I'll do it several times, a line from Charles Spurgeon, that great British preacher of the 19th century, probably the most popular preacher for about 50 years in England. And he said this, quote, I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Right. I thought the same when I first heard that line. I mean, it's a, it, what a strange line. It's, it's irony. It's oxymoron. It's what, I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I'm weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Now let's talk about the cross and see if we can't begin to understand why he said that and why we might say it too. At the cross we learn a lot. I'm going to mention two big, big themes of the cross. Number one is the cross makes it very clear that we're basket cases. We are a mess. We're all flawed. We might as well just face it. The great philosopher Sylvester Stallone, that's right, the Rambo man, he said, if you think that human nature is inherently good, get rid of the police for 24 hours. I mean, listen, we are, the heart's deceitful and desperately wicked beyond cure. Who can understand it? All our righteousness is its filthy rags and on and on and on. We know it. Tim Keller, a, a favorite preacher and writer of mine, says, the cross teaches us that we are wicked beyond what we ever dared believe. How many of you would say you're sinful? Man, a lot of you are doing well. How many of you would say you're evil? A lot fewer hands. You're getting better. How many of you would say you're wicked? We're all wicked. We're all evil. It's all the same thing. We're okay. And the cross says that with an abundant clarity. I know it's bad news, but it's hard to get it. Remember when Peter, uh, when Jesus warned Peter he would betray him? Oh, not me. I'm not that bad. Not me. See? The second theme of the cross is that we are loved and valued and forgiven beyond what we ever dared hope. Now that's a cliche. Both of those are cliches in a way, but really hear them. These are remarkable, contrasting, opposite ends of the continuum. We are sinful beyond what we ever dared believe. We are 
loved and valued beyond what we ever dared hope. Now, but I, I'm, I'm saying it poorly. Let me, uh, I, and I'm saying it in the wrong order, actually. Let me read you something out of the book Steps to Christ by a lady by the name of Ellen White. It's a wonderful little book. She has a chapter on repentance in that book. It's the longest chapter in the book. And she says this, In the Savior's life, the principles of God's law, love to God and man, were perfectly exemplified. Benevolence, unselfish love, was the life of his soul. Now listen. It is as we behold him, as the light from our Savior falls upon us, that we see the sinfulness of our own hearts. We must, we must be at the cross to have a correct perspective on our sin. If I look at my sin in any other setting, I'm going to fall into at least one of two traps. One is, I'm going to just berate myself and punish myself and ain't it awful, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. You said it, Pastor, I'm wicked. Or we'll, and we'll just stay in the, in the mud. Or the other trap we fall into is I'm going to look at my sin and then I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad after all. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sugarcoat and rationalize my sin. And neither are a good place to be. At the cross, I first see how loved and valued I am. It, we ought to go, we just ought to go to Luke 22 and Peter uh, when he betrayed Jesus. And right after he betrayed him in verse 61, and to me this is absolutely one of the most poignant and beautiful uh, little moments in Scripture. Uh, here we read in Luke twenty-two sixty-one: the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. This is right after he denied him. He looked straight at Peter. Just imagine that look for a minute. I don't think there was any condemnation in it. My, I suspect there was some hurt. I'm quite sure there was a whole lot of love. If Peter hadn't turned and looked at Jesus, I don't think he would have run to the garden weeping. Do you? I don't think so. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. What a look. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. And in the and let me finish it. Before the rooster crows, today you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. But what caused him to weep bitterly was a look of love from Jesus. A remarkable look of love and forgiveness. And that's why Peter was one of the first ones at the tomb on Sunday. You see... He couldn't get wait to get back to Jesus. 
Now, now let me just mention Spurgeon's line again. I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Now, we just noticed it is as we behold him, as the light from our Savior falls upon us, that we see the sinfulness of our own hearts. Now, now just think about this for a minute. The, this isn't an either or or an order it happens. What you've got is you've got a whole mixture of stuff going on. At the cross, you're experiencing that look and that love and that value and that forgiveness. You're experiencing all that, and that's bringing you to just a brokenness and a repentance and a, and a contrition for, for sin, the sin that I am, as well as the sin that I do. And it's all intertwined and mixed together, and it's a huge relief, isn't it? When you see sin and confess it and are truly repentant, isn't there relief to that? Especially when you're doing it in the context of being loved and valued and forgiven and safe, absolutely safe. And so, do you think it's possible to cry tears of joy and tears of repentance at the same time? I think maybe so. And so this is all happening together as we stay at the cross And the tears of gratitude, tears of disbelief for his love and his forgiveness and the way he values us. If you want to know how much something is worth, go out and sell it, then you'll know. It's kind of a pious, we you said it a lot, it's a cliche, but how much are we worth? As much as heaven paid, a lot, the ultimate. So we shed tears of gratitude and overwhelming love for all of that. And it brings us to a place of brokenness. And we shed tears of repentance for hurting Jesus and hurting others. We're contrite, no longer holding on to self-defensiveness and self-protection and self-justification. We're just relieved in his love. Now, it's time to go in our study to the laboratory and move from the classroom. We've done the teaching work, and now let's go to the laboratory and actually experience it lived out in a story. Mary DeMuth writes a, a book entitled The Wall Around Your Heart, and early in the book she tells this story we're going to walk through it carefully and slowly, and I'm going to talk about it because it, it demonstrates wonderfully just what we've been talking about. I had a conversation with my husband about a couple we once knew. The husband had been chewing tobacco and hiding it from his wife. When she found out, she exploded. The couple used that time of sheer honesty to start a new foundation in their relationship. I admired them, but I'm pretty sure I said, Honey, if you ever do anything like that, I'll kill you. I said it with a smile, but my smile had teeth. Flip forward in the DeMuth family album. For some reason, I couldn't use our minivan to go to the gym one morning, so I borrowed Patrick's truck. 
I needed something in the glove compartment. Don't rush now ahead of me here. As I opened it, a little round can fell to the passenger side floor. My heart fell with it. My husband was hiding his habit. I wanted to yell. I envisioned a lot of ranting and storming about, arms flailing to the ceiling, voice attaining a high pitch. She deserves to do that, don't you think? And he deserves to get it. I mean, she was, it's so wonderful to be right. Especially when it's clear. It's all one-sided. She was right. He was all wrong. It feels so good to be right and get angry about it. Just self-justification. Frederick Beatner says of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. I mean, you know, some of you have heard the line I like to say, we do a lot, if not most, of our sinning when we're right. And right's not happening. And she wanted to go in there and let him have it. And it would have been sin. Even though she was right, it would have been that old sinful nature, that wicked, evil, sinful, self-justified, self-defensive. Attitudinally, it would have been an attack not authored by Christ in her or her in Christ, just offered by self. Would you agree with that? Are we together? Okay. She said, instead, I stopped in that moment. I'm going to stop now. Do you know, if we simply learned to stop when evil comes our way, how different things would be. My dear, dear friend and mentor, Bill Lovelace, was here first service, and I, I thought of him. I remember years ago, he said to a group of us, there are no emergencies. I disagree with him a little. There are a few, once in a rare while, but we just, re hey, we need to stop. Just stop. Let the Holy Spirit stop us. And this is the hardest thing to do when we're in this state because we're so full of sin. And sin wants to just express itself. And Paul says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But she stopped, and we need to stop because if we give any open the door, even a sneak, to returning evil with evil, we've lost it. It's off and running. We need to use our chooser. You've heard the line, everything depends on the right action of the will. The battle with self is the greatest battle that's ever been fought. We need to stop. Please stop. There's no hurry. What do we need to do? A few of you got it. Hey. <laughs> hey, listen, please. You know what? If you did nothing today but walked from here and said, Jesus, whenever evil comes my way of any kind, anything from the daily irritations that aren't fair and it shouldn't be happening this way, things should go, be going differently, to the, to the major issues, if, if, if you just said, Jesus, please stop me and face me towards you. Just stop me and face me towards you, away from the event. There's no hurry. 
I stopped in that moment, turned on the ignition, drove to the gym. I stepped onto the treadmill, plugged in some worship music, and prayed like a crazy woman. <laughs> hey, you know what? <laughs> Jesus must be so bored with our passionless prayers. I mean, it's time we do some screaming and shouting at Jesus instead of screaming and shouting at each other. And David did that. The Psalms are loaded with David saying horrific things to God. One of the, what tops the list is, Lord, I wish you'd kill the children of my enemies. That's as bad as it gets. He'd go to jail for that for life today. I mean, listen, I mean, David just unloaded. We need to learn to take all that evil and that stuff to Jesus at the cross. She says, face forward, I let Jesus have every bit of me, every feeling of betrayal, every hot shred, every hot shred of anger, every gnarl of revenge. And let me tell you something. When we turn to Jesus with all that stuff in us and really look at the cross, hang around the cross, meditate on it, catch that look, that look of love. I, I would like to say, I'll guarantee you, you will not be able to keep up your head of steam of sin. You will be overwhelmed with how much you're loved and valued and forgiven and how safe you are. You'll be overwhelmed. And all of a sudden, all of that stuff in you will be diffused and it will lose, lose its power as you look at Jesus' love and as you realize, I am sinning and much more of a sinner than the evil that's being done to me. How can I judge? How can I get critical? How can I elope? You're going to lose all of that because in the light of his love, you're just going to repent. You're going to repent. She said, I focused on Jesus on that treadmill. I thought of the cross, how Jesus suffered innocently for the wrong we did. Suddenly she's moving from wanting to attack and rail him. And suddenly she's realizing, I'm the one that deserves what I want to give out. No, I can't judge. He suffering gave me an invitation for kinship with him. Still, I felt lied. Betrayed, lied to and deceived. The weight of my husband's sin felt hot and sticky and I suffered under it. But in giving every single thought to Jesus in that moment, I opened the door for healing. Now she says, we forget that sin tends to abound, to grow, to flourish in the midst of angry arguments where we can blame someone for the terrible thing he or she did. Our ungodly or uncontrolled response can add more sin to the mix until it becomes a volcanic sin fest. Isn't that a great two-liner? A volcanic sin fest. How awful and how guilty we are. By taking my anger to Jesus first, my heart settled. There was space to process and grieve, and I experienced an odd sense of peace. I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. His grace made do not be overcome by evil no longer a pipe dream, but a lived experience.
in Christ, Christ in her. How about the line, overcome evil with good? Since it had been early in the morning when I exercised, my tobacco-chewing husband was asleep when I arrived home. I watched him for a minute, wondering if there were other unsolved mysteries between us. And then I crawled in next to him. I placed my arms around him. And I said, I found your can of chew in the glove compartment. Want to tell me the story? Hey, when evil happens, you don't ignore it. You don't stuff it. You don't just smile and say everything's nice. It happened. But she stopped, did all we've talking about, and returned to the situation in Christ, dead to self, crucified with Christ, Christ's life flowing through her, and with incredible grace and beauty and love, put her arms around her husband and said, I found your can of chew in the glove compartment. You want to tell me the story? Wow. Isn't that a glory? Isn't that a glory? Oddly, and I don't think it's odd, given all we've been talking about, we had a civil conversation. I didn't explode. I'd been one of those wives who had secret fears, particularly this one after our friends had walked through it. I thought beforehand that I couldn't bear up under that kind of trickery, but I did by God's sheer and available grace. Patrick apologized. He felt relieved, actually, to be found out. It's wonderful to bring our sin in. That's a whole other topic into the open. We read in John, and it loses its power. And to be found out, he kept on chewing, but no longer in secret. The power of the secret faded. He kicked the habit without me nagging or ranting or threatening. Do you remember the old hymn, Jesus? Keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain. And then this line, free to all, a healing stream, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I am weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Oh God, you who are able to do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine according to your power that is a work within us. God, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.